The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. All right, good morning. I want to welcome you to Berean Bible Church, and this morning we're going to be talking about understanding Scripture. Now, I'm sure that you're aware that is not a simple thing to do. All you have to do is look around at the different churches with their different beliefs, which they all say come from the Bible. And it's easy to see that understanding Scripture is not all that easy. I mean, there are good and godly men who disagree about every doctrine the Bible teaches. Some read the Bible and end up Arminians. Others read the Bible and are Calvinists. Some study the Scriptures and are Charismatics. Others study the same Scriptures and they are not Charismatic. Now when it comes to the subject of eschatology, the end times, we have dispensationalists, some of whom are pre-trib, some are mid-trib, some are post-trib. We have pre yeah, <laughs> premillennialists, we have post-millennialists, <laughs> And we have, ah, one more time, ah, millennialists, okay? Then we have partial preterists and we have preterists. I mean, wow, they all read the same Bible, yet they see things so differently. And this should tell us that understanding the Bible is not really a simple task. If you're going to understand the Bible, we have to have some understanding of hermeneutics. Now, I realize there's people who have been Christians forever and they never even heard of hermeneutics, all right? Hermeneutics is the science of biblical interpretation. Any written document is subject to interpretation, and there are laws that guide interpretation. And so the purpose of hermeneutics is to establish guidelines and rules for interpreting the Bible. We want to safeguard from misunderstanding, so we apply the rules. We know that God has spoken. What He has said is recorded in Scripture. The basic need of hermeneutics is to ascertain what did God mean by what He said. For example, John 14, 12-14 says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in Me will do the works that I do and greater works. Then these will He do, because I'm going to the Father. Whatever you ask in My name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask Me anything in My name, I will do it. Now, how do we take these promises from the Lord? I mean, this is an important question. Is this literal? What do you think? Are the promises to be taken literal? And if you say, well, yes, of course we take them literally. Well, then I'm going to ask you, are all your prayers being answered? Because he said, if you ask anything in my name, I'll do it. Does that that seem true for you all? How about this? Let me ask you this. He says, whoever believes in me will do the works that I do and greater. Are you doing greater works than the Lord did? You see the problem here? So how do we know if these verses are to be taken literally or not? Well, that's a good question. I'm glad you asked. We all know what Yeshua said. The important question is, what did he mean by what he said? How do we determine that? Well, we're to determine what the Bible means by the use of hermeneutics. We don't have to go, um, we don't have the time this morning to go through all the principles of hermeneutics because there's a lot of them, but I just want to pull out two that I think are really crucial understanding and two that I think are kind of misunderstood. The primary rule of hermeneutics is what? Primary rule. All right. That's right. Very good, class. The analogy of faith. All right. That's the primary rule. And what that means is that Scripture interprets Scripture. Does that make sense? No part of Scripture can be interpreted in such a way as to render it in conflict with what is clearly taught elsewhere in Scripture. The analogy of faith is a safeguard that should help us from reading into Scripture something that's not there. The Bible's not going to contradict itself, so we've got to search and find out is there some, something else that helps clear this up. So we got to go to what's easily understood and then continue to dig until we have reconciled the apparent contradiction or the difficult understanding. God is not the author of confusion. 
And I believe his word is adequately clear to show us the answers. The Westminster Confession of Faith says this, The infallible rule of interpretation of Scripture is the Scripture itself. And therefore, when there is a question about the true and full sense of any Scripture, which is not manifold but one, what they're saying is there's only one meaning. It's not a ten different meanings to this verse, okay? There's applications we can make, but there's the meaning we have to understand there's one. It must be searched and known by other places that speak more clearly. Now, under the principle of the analogy of faith, I want to bring up an aspect of this point that I've come to believe is vital to understanding the Bible. And you might not find this in any studies on hermeneutics. But it's this. The Bible is one book. It's one book. Now, several weeks ago, during the question and answer, someone asked the question about decoupling or unhitching the Old Testament. And that's because Andy Stanley had taught, he did this lesson and he taught about unhitching the Old Testament. You know, in other words, we don't really need that. Now, Andy has walked that back recently and I think he was kind of misunderstood. What he was saying was we need to uncouple the Old Covenant. Very different, and I'll try to explain that in a minute. But so there's, there's discussion today, though, among Christians is, well, is the Old Testament really valuable? Is it useful? I mean, don't we just need to have the New Testament and just read that and get everything from that? No. It's my opinion that the designation Old Testament is destructive. I don't even like the term. When you think of something as old, you think of it as outdated, you think of it as not needed any longer, right? When I get a new phone, what do I do with my old one? <laughs> I don't need it anymore. I don't want it. It's old, right? I think that most Christians have the idea that the Old Testament is not needed. It's not useful for believers. And this is due, I think, in part to confu- confusing the Old Covenant, which has been superseded by the New Covenant, to the Old Testament. We connect the Old Covenant and the Old Testament, and since the Old Covenant passed away, we believe so is the Old Testament. The Old Covenant is fulfilled. We are under the New Covenant as believers, but the Old Testament is not old. This is why I call the Old Testament the Tanakh. Christians call it the Old Testament, but do you understand that Jews don't call it that? (laughs) You say the Jews, what about the Old Testament? That's the only testament we have, okay? It's not old, that's our testament. They call it the Tanakh. That's what a Jew would call it, all right? Tanakh is an acronym that identifies the Hebrew Bible. The acronym is based on the initial Hebrew letters of each of the text's three parts. The first part is the Torah meaning instruction, the Pentateuch. That's the first five books of the Bible, the books of Moses. Then you have the Nevi'im, meaning the prophets, and the Ketavim, meaning the writings. So this breaks down the Hebrew Bible. They call it the Tanakh. Now, here's what I need you to understand very clearly today, okay? Apart from understanding the Tanakh, you will never completely understand the New Testament. Okay? Please get that. It's not old. You need to understand it. The writers of the New Testament all suppose that their readers understood the Tanakh. Look at Romans 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Yeshua, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through the prophets and the Holy Scriptures. What Paul is saying here, he is saying that the gospel was promised in the Tanakh. He says, through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, that's a reference to the Tanakh. So to understand the words of the New Testament, we need to understand what the Tanakh is saying. For example, the new believer begins to read the Bible and he probably starts where? He probably starts in Matthew since it's the first book, right? And that's where I started as a Christian. I mean, when I became a Christian, I said, I figure I'm supposed to read this book. I opened up to the New Testament in Matthew, and I got begat, 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 and I was like, wow, I'm about done with this already, you know, because I didn't understand all those begats. But you open, and verse 1 says, the book of the genealogy of Yeshua the Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. We have to ask, you read the first verse, and you say, who's David? Who's Abraham? 
or who's even Yeshua for that matter, where do we get answers to those questions? You've got to go back to the first three quarters of the Bible, the Tanakh. Speaking of Mary, Matthew writes this, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Yeshua, for he will save his people from their sins. What did Mary call her son? Let me say here that Mary never called her son by the Greek name Jesus, okay? Or the English name Jesus. Nobody ever heard the word Jesus until the, after the 17th century because there wasn't a J in the language, okay? Our Savior's name when He walked the earth was Yeshua. In Matthew 1, 1 through 1-16, it makes it clear that He came from Hebrew descent through the line of Judah. In other words, He's Jewish. He was born to and raised by Jewish parents who raised Him under Jewish culture. He spoke Hebrew. Yeshua is the name that all the apostles would have known Him by, and that's what His mother would have called Him. In the Greek here, the name Jesus, which can be translated into the Latin as Jesus, 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 neither which have meaning in the sense of just the words. You know, our, our language, we have names, they, just, they don't have a special meaning, it's just a, a label we hook on to somebody. But the Hebrew name Yeshua means what? Yahweh saves. Yahweh saves. And look what it says here. It says they'll call His name Yeshua. Why? Because He will save His people from their sins. Because Yahweh saves. That's why this name is significant. Now, you, you read this and you've got to ask, well, who are His people? Well, it's the Israelites. And Matthew then tells us that this is in fulfillment of prophecy in the Tanakh. In verse 22, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophets. So, the fact that He's going to bear the name Yeshua, that He's going to save His people from their sins, the prophets talked about this. And then he quotes from Isaiah. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call His name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now, let me just say here that one of the things I really like about the New American Standard is they put all quotations in caps. So this really helps you when you're reading, and, and they're quoting some, Prophet from the Tanakh right away because it's all in caps, you know that's a quotation. So the Virgin Mary giving birth to Yeshua was foretold in the Tanakh. That's not didn't come about all of a sudden in the New Testament. This was foretold. Well, then in chapter 2, it said of Herod, and assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written in the prophets. Oh, so the prophets talked about where we would be born. And then he quotes again from the Tanakh, but this time he quotes from Micah. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who shall shepherd my people Israel. So it seems like we can learn a lot about Yeshua from the Tanakh. Because everything that Matthew's saying, he said, well, the Tanakh said this. And then in verse 14, Matthew again uses the Tanakh and he says this. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet out of Egypt, I have called my son. Now, let me make a couple of comments here about this verse. First of all, understand this. Peter says this. No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So, God is the ultimate author of the Bible. This is important because truth has implications of how we understand it. This is God's Word. God wrote it. Alright? Look at Hosea 11.1. 1. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. Who's the author of this passage? Well, according to the first verse in Hosea, it's the prophet Hosea. That's who's writing this. Well, how do we know what his intention is in this passage? Well, first we know approximately when he lived. We also have the broader context of the whole book, which gives us a fuller idea of what Hosea intended to say in this one verse. 
And when we study the text in the context of this entire book, we find that Hosea is referring to the Exodus described in the book of Exodus. So he's saying, out of Egypt I called my son. But here's the question. We have just seen in Matthew 2.15 that the writer applies Hosea 1.11 to Yeshua as a youth returning from Egypt. So the writer, Hosea, says, out of Egypt I've called my son. He's talking about the Exodus. But Matthew applies that to Christ. This reference doesn't seem in keeping with Hosea's intention. It's here that we have to remember where a meaning of a text ultimately resides. It's in the intention of its author, who is God Himself. And as we read Scripture in the context of the Bible as a whole, we see that He made an analogy between Israel, the covenant people coming out of Egypt, who, who He calls God's Son, being freed from Egypt, and Yeshua, God's Son, coming up from Egypt. And here we see a pattern that runs throughout Matthew's Gospel. Out of Egypt I have called my son is Exodus typology, where Yeshua is the new true Israel. Alright, that's what Matthew's telling us. We have a second Exodus here. We have another Israel here. If we don't know the Tanakh, if we're not familiar with it, we'll never see this Exodus typology in Matthew. So let's briefly look at this typology. The setting for the New Testament story is the return to the desert or the wilderness for Israel. And the 40 years between AD 30 and AD 70 can be directly compared to the original wilderness wandering of the Old Covenant Israel. The Bible in Exodus, I mean the Bible in Isaiah calls this the second Exodus. We had the Exodus of Israel out of the bondage of Egypt to the promised land. Now in the New Covenant we have another Exodus. The children, the children of God are moving away from the Old Covenant into the New Covenant. It's another exodus. And like Moses, let's look at some of the similarities here. Like Moses, Yeshua will grow up in Egypt. Like the story of Moses, Herod slaughters the male children. Remember Pharaoh slaughtered the children? Now in the New Covenant, we have Herod slaughtering the children. Like Moses exiled the Midian, Yeshua's exile to Egypt will end with the death of Herod Pharaoh. And then we have a new Exodus foretold. Out of Egypt, I've called my son. Well, then we see that Yeshua is baptized in Matthew 3, 12 through 17. And Yeshua emerges from the water. We hear this. This is my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. Which invokes a related image back to Exodus. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says Yahweh, Israel is my firstborn son. I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. So Israel was adopted and became God's son at the exodus from Egypt at the crossing of the Red Sea. And so this is a new exodus typology in which the new Israel is born. And when we come to Matthew 4, 1-11, which describes Yeshua's temptation in the wilderness, if we're familiar with the Tanakh, we will see a pattern again. When we read that Yeshua, the Son of God, spent 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness, this reference may remind us of the Israelites' 40-year trek in the wilderness. But the comparison goes beyond the number 40. The Israelites were also tempted in the wilderness in the same three areas in which Yeshua was tempted. Hunger and thirst, testing God, and worshiping false gods. Yeshua, however shows himself to be an obedient son of God, where the Israelites were disobedient. Indeed, Yeshua responded to the temptations by quoting Deuteronomy, and here's what's cool, the sermon that Moses gave the Israelites at the end of their 40-year sojourn. Quotes the same thing. What does Yeshua do next in Matthew? Seeing the crowds, he went up on a mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth, and taught them, saying, Alright, so what's going on? Yeshua goes up to a mountain. What Did Moses do that? Moses went up on the mountain. He got the Torah, right? Yeshua goes up the mountain. He gets the new Torah, the Sermon on the Mount. Yeshua is the new Israel. And this typology can only be seen if we are familiar with the Tanakh. Over and over, Matthew says that all this information about Yeshua is from the Tanakh. 
Let me give you one more, just to make sure you're tracking with me, okay? Let's go to 8.16. That evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. Alright, so Yeshua's casting out the demons. He's healing everybody that's sick. They're getting well. Not some, and he's not healing low back pain or sinus headaches. He's healing them of some real problems, okay? And now watch what he says. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. And here's what Isaiah said. He took our illness and bore our diseases. So that talked about him back then in the Tanakh. All these things have been explained in the Tanakh. Okay, so I guess you get the point by now, right? Over and over, Matthew quotes from the Tanakh. Let me say again what I said earlier. Apart from understanding the Tanakh, you will never completely understand the New Testament. Now let me try to demonstrate this to you. When the new believer who was reading Matthew, okay, they started in Matthew 1.1, 1, 1, you know, they got through the genealogy, all the begots, and they, you know, kept on moving, and they said, hey, there's a story here. And then they come to Matthew 24, and it reads this, Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of heaven will be shaken. Alright, the sun's going to get dark, the moon's not going to give its light, the stars are going to fall out of heaven. How does a new reader, how does a new Christian, they're reading and they read this, they with the sun, the moon, the stars, they're falling, the light's going out of it. How, how would they view this? They most likely would think this is the end of the world. Right? Doesn't it sound like that? But, here's the key. If they're familiar with the Tanakh, they would get a different idea from this. Because they would say, oh, this language is used throughout the Tanakh, but it's not speaking of the end of the world. So let's go to the Tanakh and see how sun, moon, and stars are used other than in a literal way. Where do we start? Uh, let's go to Genesis. This is something you're probably familiar with. Joseph has a dream. Then he dreamed another dream, and he told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and the eleven stars were bowing down to me. Now, is Joseph's dream about the literal sun, moon, stars? How would a star bow? How would the sun bow? Now, this may confuse us. But obviously, Joseph's father knew he wasn't talking about the sun, moon, and stars, because look how he responds. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, what is this dream that you have dreamed? I mean, it's not his fault he had a dream, right? Why is he getting mad at him? Here's what he doesn't like. Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come and bow ourselves to the ground before you? His father understood this dream. The sun was the father. The moon was the mother. The eleven stars were his brothers. And they're bowing down before them. So he interprets the dream as referring to himself and his family. They represented the foundation of the whole Jewish nation. And when Yeshua therefore spoke of the sun being darkened, the moon not giving its light, the stars falling from him, he's not referring to the end of the solar system or the world. He's referring to a complete dissolution of the Jewish state. Listen, the destruction of a state or government is often spoken of in language that seems to be talking about the end of the world. Now here's one thing. When we, we did this verse in our study in Matthew, or the, the verse in Matthew. We did that when we just did our Matthew study in 24. And I talked about stars being divine beings. Well, see, at the time of the destruction of the Jewish temple, the false gods were judged at that time. So they were judged. Israel was destroyed. This all happened at the same time. And this, people, is apocalyptic language is common among the Hebrew prophets. This idea is seen clearly as we look at page, passages that mention um, destruction of a state and government, but that uses language that seems to be talking about the end of the world. See, now you come to this passage in Matthew, the sun and the moon and the stars and all this, and you're like, that's definitely the end of the world. But, again, if you're familiar with the Tanakh, let's look at just one chapter here, Isaiah 13. The oracle concerning Babylon. Who's this oracle about? It's a test. This is a trick question. Who's it about? You think Babylon, right? An oracle, the word oracle here is Massah, and it means an utterance chiefly of doom. This is a judgment. 
a judgment pronunciation. Who's it against again? Babylon. And only Babylon. Okay? That's important to keep that in mind. This introduction sets the stage for the subject matter in this chapter. And if we forget this, then our interpretation of Isaiah 13 can go just about anywhere our imagination wants to go. This is not an oracle against the universe. It's not an oracle against the world. It's against the nation of Babylon. Look what he says in verse 6. Wail, for the day of Yahweh is near. As destruction from the Almighty it will come. So again, it's an oracle. It's a thing of doom. He's talking about destruction from the Lord. Let's go on to verse 9. He says, Behold, the day of Yahweh comes, cruel with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising and the moon will not shed its light. I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked. And you say, well, see there, it says world. Again, we're talking about Babylon. I'll clear this up in a minute. It goes on. For their iniquity, I will put an end to the pomp of the arrogant and lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless. I will make people more rare than fine gold and mankind than the gold of Ophrah. Therefore, I will make the heavens tremble and the earth will be shaken out of its place at the wrath of Yahweh of hosts in the day of His fierce anger. So the heavens are trembling here. The earth is being shaken out of its place. Now again, remember, he is speaking about the destruction of Babylon. This sounds like worldwide destruction. But remember, the terminology of a context cannot be expanded beyond the scope of the subject under discussion. The spectrum of language can't go outside the land of Babylon. If you were a Babylonian and Babylon was destroyed, would it seem to you like the world was destroyed? Your world would be destroyed. You're a Babylonian. My world's gone. Okay? Who cares about anybody else? My world is gone. I got burned up. The world would be destroyed to them. He says in 13.7, Behold, I am stirring up the Medes against them who have no regard for silver and do not delight in gold. So God's saying... The way I'm going to destroy Babylon, I'm going to send the Medes in there and they're going to wipe out Babylon. Now people, this is a historical event. we got records of this. This took place in 539 B.C. when the Medes destroyed Babylon. The Babylonian world came to an end. And this destruction is said in verse 6 to be from the Almighty. And the Medes constitute the means that God used to accomplish this. Alright, that's really important to understand. This destruction is from God, but He is using the Medes. He's sending the Medes in there. I am stirring up the Medes against them. This is apocalyptic language. This is the way the Bible discusses the fall of a nation. It's obviously figurative. God didn't intend for us to take this literally, because if you take it literally, the world ended in 539 B.C. And I I have a hard time buying into that. Do you? Can you buy that? I can't. So when Matthew talks about the sun, moon, and stars falling from the sky, he's not talking about the end of the world. He's not talking about the end of the earth. He's talking about the end of Israel, the old covenant. This understanding is critical. But if you don't understand the language of the first three quarters of the Bible, you'll never understand the language of the last quarter. Because these prophets wrote with this apocalyptic language, and the New Testament writers picked up the same language and used it. So we have to get our understanding of the language from the first three quarters. The Bible was written in a time far distant from ours, and in cultures quite strange to us. And you read about things in the Bible, and you try to apply it to our culture, it's not going to work, okay? So as we try to discover the author's meaning, we need to learn to read his writing as one of his contemporaries would. How would the people that lived during that time, how would they understand this? How do we know that? How would we know how they understand it? We got some helps now. See, we have what's called the pseudepigrapha now. These are writings that took place during that time. And in those writings, we learn definitions of words. We learn what they meant by certain things. Same thing with the Dead Sea Scrolls. We learn from them. So we have some idea of the culture. Because we got to know what did it mean to them. To do this, 
we have to understand the Tanakh like they did. For example, when you read in Revelation 1.7, Behold, He is coming with the clouds. Every eye will see Him, even those who pierced Him. And all tribes of the earth will wail on account of Him. Even so, Amen. Okay? We got all kinds of ideas of what this means. Alright? Again, if you're not familiar with the Tanakh, you say, He's coming on a cloud. And what do you see? You see a a five-foot Jewish man surfing on a cloud, you know, white puffy cloud. He's just surfing into a certain area or something. Notice that it says, the, the, who's going to see him? It says, even those who pierced him. Who is that? That's Israel. Okay? So we have all kinds of strange ideas when we read this. But, listen, again, if we're familiar with the Tanakh, we know that the Lord is often depicted as riding on a cloud. Psalm 18, 7 through 15, Psalm 68, 4, 104, 3, Nahum 1, 3. And as we place the biblical image in light of the ancient Near East, we realize that God's cloud is a chariot that he rides to judgment. But here's something you got to understand, people. This idea of God riding a cloud, the Israelites got this from Baal, because Baal, the god Baal, was known as the cloud rider. But see, when the writers write the Hebrew Bible, they're saying, nah, Baal's nothing. Yeshua, Yahweh is the cloud rider. Okay, he's the true cloud rider. He's the one who comes, all right? So you've got to understand, how do they understand this language? Well, look at Isaiah 19. An oracle concerning Egypt. Again now, this judgment is against Egypt. Behold, Yahweh is riding on a swift cloud. Well, that sounds just like the New Testament stuff, right? So here we got Yahweh, he's on a cloud. He comes to Egypt. See, that's his mode of transportation, right? Didn't have cars, so he just rode a cloud there. No, that's not what this is saying. He's coming to Egypt. Watch. And the idols of Egypt will tremble at his presence. So God's there, right? The heart of the Egyptians will melt within them. We know from chapter 20 that Yahweh used the Assyrians here as judgments of his wrath on Egypt. Yet it says, the Lord's riding a swift cloud. Egypt will tremble at his presence. Yahweh came to Egypt. Did he come physically to Egypt? Did somebody see God riding on a cloud? No. That's symbolism for coming in judgment. When the Assyrians moved in there and they began to wipe out Egypt, it was God's work. It was God's work. How did he come to Egypt? He came in judgment. Nobody's seeing anything. And when Yeshua talks in the New Testament about coming on the clouds, He's coming in judgment against Jerusalem. His presence, God's presence in this text, was made known in judgment. But it's the the Assyrians who were literally present. Nobody saw God. So when the New Testament talks about Yeshua riding a cloud, we understand that this is not a white, fluffy cloud. It's a storm cloud that He rides into judgment. And the more we understand the Tanakh, the better we understand the language of the New Testament. Yeshua said that the Tanakh spoke about Him in John 5.39. You search the Scripture. He's talking to the Jews, and they did search the Scripture, because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about Me. He says, it's the Scriptures that talk about Me. That's what you have to see from them. And listen, people, by Scriptures here, what does He mean? The Tanakh. Thank you. Okay? The only Bible Yeshua ever had was the Tanakh. The only Bible the disciples ever had was the Tanakh. The only Bible anybody had during the New Testament was the Tanakh. Because our Bible hadn't been put together yet. And the Father gives testimony to Yeshua the Christ in the Tanakh. You know, when Paul was standing before King Agrippa, he said this, To this day, I have had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying, both to small and to great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass. You see what he's saying? According to this verse, what was the content of Paul's preaching? The Tanakh. He he says, I'm not saying anything except what the prophets and Moses said would happen. I'm telling you what they said. I'm quoting right from the Tanakh. Does this help you to understand the importance of the Tanakh? 
Do you think we should unhitch it from our Bibles? Absolutely not, people. We need this. We need to understand so we can understand the language of the New Testament. Now, let me share with you another rule of hermeneutics that will greatly help you to understand Scripture. The second rule is called audience relevance. It's pretty big around here. We talk about it a lot. It it seems basic, but it's really important. This means that whatever a passage meant, it meant and had direct application to the original intended audience. Does that sound logical? That sound reasonable? Does that sound... The Bible was written to people. What did it mean to them? To demonstrate that many don't understand this principle... Notice what one pastor wrote, okay? Pastor writes this. You know the Bible is timeless. Let's look at these scriptures as though Paul had just sent an email to our church. People, that is one of the most destructive views I can imagine. This will keep you from understanding the Bible. But I think that most Christians view their Bible this way. Like it just arrived in the mail for you. But we need to understand that if we disengage the original audience from the Scriptures, then we can make any passage mean whatever we want to make it. We make it apply to whoever we want. Whenever we read the Scriptures, we must ask ourselves, who is the person talking or writing directly to? We need to remember that the Bible is a collection of personal letters and history books written to real people at real time, with real-time context, for instance, the book of Philippians, the Apostle Paul writes the following, I hope in the Lord Yeshua to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. Now, let's take this guy, this pastor's view here, let's say we got this in an email today, right? Oh, Timothy's coming soon. Anybody looking for him? Anybody waiting for him? You got supper prepared? You got, we're going to have a party when he gets here? I'd like to talk to Timothy. Does this teach us that we're supposed to be waiting for Timothy? So Timmy, we can give Timothy word about how we're doing and he's going to take it back to Paul? Wait a minute, I think Paul's dead. How's this going to work out? Listen, I... People don't have a problem with this verse like that. I don't know anybody that's got that kind of problem with this verse. He's coming soon. Oh, that was to them. That's talking to the Philippians. In the first century, right about AD 62, he was writing that. I get it. But when he, if you take Timothy's name out and put Yeshua's name in there, then what happens? Oh, no, he's not coming soon. He's coming later. We're still waiting for that one. How does it change like that? You know, we correctly understand the time and place context in a verse like this. The Philippians are the intended audience of this book. All time statements in the Bible need to be viewed through the same lens of audience relevance. He's not writing to us today. The books of the Bible are not mystical letters written nebulously to Christians throughout eternity, whereby all time statements are free to be extracted and applied to whatever generation you want. No. Each book was directed to a specific audience. And again, Scripture is more than adequate to show us who that audience is. Now, in keeping with the subject of audience relevance, this may perhaps shock some of you, but there's not one book in the Bible written to any of you. You know, people get freaked out about something like that. I'll say, well, just here, take the Bible and show me to the saints in Chesapeake or to the saints in Virginia Beach. Oh, that's not in there? No, it's not. Because the Bible, the canon was closed a long time ago. And there's nothing. I'm kind of glad there's nothing in there, you know. We don't have to read like the Church of Philippia. And I beseech Yodia and I beseech Syntyche be of the same mind. In other words, you people get along. Stop fighting in that church, all right? Every book in the Bible was written for us. For application, but it's not written to us, Okay? All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction of righteousness. It's for us people, but it's not written to us. Every book of the Bible is a personal letter, a history book, a writing by a prophet to a particular people at a particular time and for a particular reason. Yes, we glean truth and understanding from these books today, but that's far different than saying the books are written to us. To put it another way, we're reading other people's mail. 
But let me tell you this, this is, and this is important in this context of audience relevance. Most of the New Testament epistles are written to churches, correct? So the things that he's telling these churches apply to us, because we are the church. So when it comes to spiritual truth, we're reading this, and oh, look what it says here. You know, we are supposed to esteem others better than ourselves, Paul told the Philippians. Now, that's just to the Philippians. No, you, and people... You can get hung up in that. Some people say, well, that's the Philippians that didn't apply to us. No. Okay? We have to understand there's things he's dealing with the Philippian church about that don't apply to us. Yodia and Syntyche are gone. They're not around. They're not arguing anymore. That doesn't apply to us, okay? But we have to take the spiritual truths and realize he's addressing a church. We are a church. The spiritual things apply to us. So don't get to the point where you negate the Bible and say, no, nah, it wasn't written to us. No, but it's written to the church, and we are the church. We just have to take the time, context, and understand what it's saying to them, and we can apply it to ourselves. Whenever someone today says, here's what the Scripture means to me, you know what I say? Who cares? Who cares what it means to you? What does it mean? That's what's important. And how do you know what it means unless you deal with the original audience and find out what was it saying to them? I mean, people do that. You know what this means to me? This has a special... And it's like, that has nothing to do with you or your context or anything about that. Only after we learn what it means to the original audience can we apply it to ourselves. For example, many believers like to claim this verse for themselves. Jeremiah 29, 11. I know the plans I have for you, declares Yahweh, plans for welfare and not for evil. Oh, good. To give you a future and a hope. That's a great verse. I like it. Can we claim it? Who's it written to? Who is the you? How do we find out? Back up a verse. Look at verse 10. For thus says Yahweh, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you. And I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. So God is speaking to His people who were in the Babylonian captivity. He told them it was going to be a seven-year captivity. He said He's going to bring them back to their land, back to Jerusalem. So if you are not a Babylonian, or if you are not an Israelite in Babylonian captivity, this verse is not for you, sorry. Okay? I mean, if you want it to apply to you, you better go back and go to captivity. And they didn't like being in captivity, so this was really encouraging for them. Okay, God had plans for these captives, he's, for their welfare. To, not even He's going to give them a future. He's bringing them back to the land. Believer, when a when a Israelite's out of the land, they're away from God, because that was God. Their gods were territorial, and Yahweh was God of Jerusalem, and so when they're out of the land, they're away from God. They're under the influence of these foreign gods. All right, now <clears throat> saying that about hermeneutics, I want to give you my third point here. And understanding Scripture, and I got some bad news for you. Okay? Understanding Scripture, applying these principles of hermeneutics, the analogy of faith, the audience relevance, the Bible's one book, it takes time and hard work. It really does. Once you apply these things, you gotta, you know, it takes some effort, some work. And yet, Christians who are lazy and very casual in their approach to the Bible study, they want to understand the Bible. They want to understand it, but they don't want to work to understand it because we're in an instant society. We want everything and we want it right now. Look at Proverbs 13.4. The soul of the sluggard craves and gets nothing. He's a sluggard, so he just wants stuff, but he's not going to do anything to get it. While the soul of the diligent is richly supplied. Let me see if I can illustrate this to you with an athletic illustration. You know who the highest paid professional athlete was in 2006? Very good. Tiger Woods. He earned an estimated $1 million from winnings and endorsement. Golf Digest predicted Woods would become the, first, the world's first billionaire athlete by 2010. Didn't happen. Why? Yeah. In November 2009, Tiger Woods ran his car into a fire hydrant at the end of his driveway, triggering a cascade of scandalous revelations that just turned his world upside down. 
Okay, so that kind of derailed him. Well, he's been trying to get back on track. And today, Woods is ranked sixth out of 15 best top golfers in the world. When Tiger Woods started working on learning golf, did he start in early adulthood and work on it maybe an hour a week? Isn't that what most Christians do with Bible study? And tragically, that one hour a week for most Christians is not much of a learning time. It's more like a story time. Okay? Tiger began at two years old. And he worked hours upon hours. There's no doubt that he is an extremely gifted man, but he is what he is because of a lot of hard work. In our studies, we have seen that the Jews, from early childhood, worked on memorizing the Scriptures, the Torah, the first five books. By the time a Jewish boy was 12, he would have the Torah memorized. Can you even fathom that? Most Christians can't even read Leviticus, let alone memorize those five books. And I mean, they memorize it with an understanding that they can reason with it. You know, you can ask them, what are the birds mentioned in Leviticus? And boom, 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 they'll tell you all the birds that are mentioned. That is an incredible amount of work. Ray Vanderland talks about he was over there on a tour and a, a school bus broke down. And so all the kids got out of the bus and they're sitting on the ground. And he says, unlike American kids, they didn't pull out their laptops or their phones and everything. They all pulled out their Bibles and were working on memorization while they're waiting for the bus to get fixed. Because that's important to them. For the first 12 years, that's all they do. Memorize. So let me ask you this. Why do we think we can listen to one message on the Bible once a week, read it maybe once or twice a week, and come to understand it? Why are we so arrogant and so lazy that we spend no time in the book and yet get frustrated and even angry when we can't understand it? Look at Proverbs 2, 1-5. through 5. My son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments, you, the, the commandments are treasured, making your ears sensitive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding. Yes, if you call out for insight... And raise your voice to understanding. If you seek it like silver and search for it like hidden treasure, then you will understand the fear of Yahweh and find the knowledge of God. So let me ask you, believer, do you cry out to God for biblical understanding? Do you search the Scriptures in the same, with the same diligence that drives you to earn money? Understanding the Bible takes a huge time commitment. So i got to ask you, is God worth your time? Is He worthy of it? I think one of the greatest problems in the church today is ignorance. There are some people who have been Christians for 10 or 20 years. They know next to nothing about the Bible. And I don't think God tolerates ignorance. The 19th century English preacher, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, was right when he said this, We're to eat into the very heart of the Bible until at last we come to talk in scriptural language, our spirits are flavored with the words of the Lord so that the very essence of the Bible flows from us. What are you doing right now to assure that you develop the thorough knowledge of the Word of God? You know, there's a lot, there's a wide range of possibilities. I mean, you can, I think every believer ought to be reading through the Bible every year. It's like a 15-minute time commitment a day to read through the entire Bible every year. Most Christians have never read the Bible. Most preachers have never read the entire Bible. Read it. That's where you start. Uh, you could take notes during Bible study. Get a good Christian book and read them. Be discipled by mature Christians. Take a correspondence class at a college or something. Listen to good Christian teachers YouTube, wherever, you know, I said good, okay? So you, gotta, you have to have discernment. you got to sort things out. I talked to a lady last week, and she said she listens to, and I believe it was six preachers every Sunday. That's awesome. I mean, she's hungry. She wants to learn. I'm one of those six, okay? But she listens to six, and she's getting this input. And I think that's really valuable. You want to get input from different directions so you're not always hearing the same thing. Make sure that you're receiving nourishment daily from the Word of God using whatever avenue. 
I think one of the best ways to make sure you're making progress is to meet regularly with another Christian and share with each other what you're learning, what you're doing to grow. Peter said, grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Yeshua the Christ. You can't do that apart from the Word of God. Now, just in case you're asking this, and some might be, why exert so much effort to Bible study? I'm going to tell you why. Because Scripture is the self-revelation of God. In it, the mind and the heart of God are laid bare on many matters. With the knowledge of Scripture, we learn who God is. We learn what God values. The Bible reveals God. That's why I exert so much effort on Bible study. If we're going to understand the Bible, we need to understand the rules of hermeneutics. We need to apply them to our study. The Scripture will interpret the Scripture. Just keep looking through it until you find what you're looking for. Along with this, we need to realize the Bible is only one book. Don't separate the Tanakh from it. You need that. We also need to apply audience relevance. It's not written to us today. It's written 2,000 years ago. Keep that in mind as we're reading it. And people, we need to be willing to put in some time and hard work. We need to devote much time and energy to the Bible. So again, I'll ask you, is God worthy of our time? Well, if you say, yeah, yeah, God's worthy of my time, let me ask you this. Does your commitment to the Scripture demonstrate that He's worthy of your time? I mean, if we ask you, okay, how much time do you spend in the Word of God this week? Well, none, but, no but. You know, people make excuses. I always say people do what they want to. They do what they want to. They make excuses for not doing stuff, but they do what they want. What they want to do, they get done. So if it's important to you, you'll make time. You'll carve out time. It'll be a fight. It'll be a battle because there's too many things that want want our time, want to rob our time, steal our time. But if it's important to you, if God's worthy of your time, you'll spend some time getting to know Him. I'll tell you what, it's a worthwhile endeavor, people. <laughs> it's a wor- it'll bless you in every which way because there's nothing greater you can do in this life than build a relationship with your Creator. Let's pray. Father, I thank You for the opportunity to look at Your Word. Lord, we realize it's not easy to understand the Scripture. That's why there's so many different views. But I pray that you would give each and every one of us, everyone hearing me, Lord, the heart of a Berean. That the desire would be to search the Scriptures to see if the things are so. Not believing everything they hear, not rejecting everything they hear, but going to the Word of God and searching it to see if what we hear is true. Father, I thank you for the study tools you've given us today, for the opportunities that anybody who has a desire can learn so much about you. Thank you, Father, for your self-revelation through this book. May it be precious to us. Thank you, Lord. Amen.